Welcome to the Engage and Equip podcast. This is a resource designed to help form substantive disciples for the local church. We recently put on a conference at High Point Church called Sexuality Everywhere. We were looking at the question, how can we glorify Jesus as sexual beings? This session is called Extended and Explicit with Nick Gibson and Adam Mabry, and they're specifically going to be talking about what sexual practices are we free in Christ to enjoy. We apologize for the recording quality in this particular breakout. There were two recorders going, one on Nick and one on Adam, and the one that was on Nick unfortunately wasn't picking him up, so we only have the one that's on Adam. So you should be able to hear both of them through Adam's, um, but it might be a little bit more difficult to hear Nick. But either way, thanks for listening. Put your hand up if you can hear well. If you can't hear well, maybe turn the din of the noise down a little bit. I'm like Nick, but with a better shaped head and a more disagreeable. Um, so, are we good? I don't have it. I don't really want Ladies and gentlemen, this is Nick Gibson. He's the. That's that's the transition. <laughs> transition. <laughs> wow. 
<laughs> Thanks. Um, I, I'm, I'm going to pray. Um, <laughs> um, God, this is a, um, a super important topic. Uh, Father, some in here are um, already a little bit on edge and maybe uh, even offended. Um, Lord, I pray that you'd um, just pour out your spirit right now and grant us the virtue of humility and prudence and wisdom and um, to, the, to remember that it is the glory of God to overlook offense. And Lord, uh, help us, I, I pray, help, help these men and women to embody uh, their sexual experiences as married people in ways that honor you and bring uh, joy to them and in accordance with the scriptures. Amen. Amen. All right. Um, so I did a whole sermon last night about like the big biblical story of sex, which is in itself super reductionistic because I can't in 45 minutes even do that. Um, and so, you know, the obvious moral is like, read your Bible. Um, I get asked this, How, where did you get these great ideas? I'm like, in, in my, in my Bible, um, which I don't know if you know, they sell uh, pretty cheaply. In fact, you can get them for free on your phone. You should read it. Um, and it usually gets that reaction. So yeah. Um, so, so in the scriptures, there's obviously this massive, massive um, story about sexuality. And in this particular session, what we simply want to do is give you some, remind you of some guiding principles, and then we can do some Q and A uh, and maybe teach you a little bit of a framework. Um, so yeah, these are the three main. Um, buckets in which uh, people think about sex. The first is that sex is, is gross. And this um, has been in the church and, and not in the church. The idea is like in polite company, you don't talk about sex and sexuality. In uh, general, Western civilized conversation, which is sort of a watered down aristocratic uh, mannerisms uh, that washed into American culture up and into you know the 1950s and certain parts of the South and the Midwest, they're still with us. These are just not things we talk about. That's sort of gross. It's bodily, and you know just sort of keep that to yourself. Um, that's not biblical. The Bible tells us uh, all kinds of uh, true things about sex. And so if you're here and you're like your general, like reaction to talking about the practices of human sexuality, it just sort of grants you this uh, gross reaction. Um, that's uh, a reaction you'll want to bring under um, under control. Now, the opposite of that, of course, is like sex is God. Sex is like the most important thing about anybody, and so it's a defining feature. Who you're attracted to, those with whom you wish to engage in sexual relations are uh, one of the groundwork level, basement foundational aspects of your personhood such that if you can't express them, uh, and if someone like me tells you you can't express them, I'm not just disagreeing with you, I'm dehumanizing you. Uh, living between Harvard and MIT, this is the nonsense that I'm told all the time. I don't even technically know what it means to dehumanize someone because I, I can't, you are a human. That, that it, I can't turn you into a ficus or a dolphin. You're always going to be a human. And so my disagreeing with you, uh, if it feels threatening to you, I'm sorry. Um, just remember, if I feel threatening to you, I am 5'7 and 145 pounds soaking wet. I, I feel like you should not, and unarmed, yeah. Um, I am, uh, I sh you should not feel threatened by me. If you do, I, that might be more on you uh, than my, my personage. Um, Sex, uh, this is the idea that like a human can't be a human without sexual expression. And um, that, that is also not true. And um, we could talk briefly, if you're interested in how we got to that view, uh, we, we can yeah, talk about that. Yeah, explicitly that a human can't be a human without sexual intercourse. Because <coughs> everybody's a man or a woman all the time. 
we're always beings that have asexuality. That's already happening. Sex is God is the idea is you can't put any restrictions on me doing sexual stuff with people. If you do that, you're dehumanizing me or taking away my rights or something like that. Yes. And that's specifically in reference to sexual practice because we're all being the kind of embodied sexual creatures like all the time. You can't ever mm -hmm. stop doing that. Yeah. Um, and then the third one is the idea that sex is a, is a gift. Um, that, that sex is something that God created and he created it very good. And uh, that's obviously the one that Christians should be leaning into very much. And so it's interesting when you do a quick survey of the biblical literature about sex, what you find is that like God's really cool with a great, wonderful expression of human sexuality uh, within the covenant of marriage and not super specific about the exact practices of what that looks like. It's a little bit like the inversion or the inverse of um, the Greek word porneia, which has often been remarked is this like large um, junk drawer term into which all non-covenant marriage sexual practices go. Similarly, within the covenant of marriage, uh, there's an enormous amount of freedom for couples to express themselves sexually with one another, um, safely, lovingly, um, agreeably, uh, without you know a, a lot of like. That's why your Bible doesn't have like a centerfold with like a chart, you know, about what you should be doing. Um, if your Bible does, it's not a Bible. Um, <laughs> And you have you probably have one of the first or second views. None of you are going to get a refund if that was Yeah, there you go. Um, uh, so, you know, in marriage, I mean, I believe, and I, I teach this to our, our church a lot, is that you know, a, a wonderful sex life is the inheritance of God's people who are married. Like that, we should be. You should pray for that. I mean, if you if you're married and you don't pray, that God would bless your your relationship sexually. I mean, surely you pray for communication. If you don't, it's because you're bad at it and you should start praying. Your, your spouse wants you to pray to be a better communicator. Um, we should pray and expect in faith that God's going to bless this aspect of our, of our relationship. But beyond that, there, it, it really guides us principally uh, with how to think about sex as a gift and how to practice that gift, which I suppose is what we mostly want to spend the rest of our time yeah, can I thinking about figure out what we figure out okay, so, okay. There we are. One of the things that Brad gets into this, let me say one thing like biblically speaking. There is only one passage in the entire Bible that refers to a, a sexual practice that God judges that isn't a question of who you're having sex with. So in every case where the Bible sort of talks about like that's not okay, it is always who you're having sex with under what covenantal relationship. There's only one practice that is not the case. It's the case in Genesis of Oman, which we won't get entirely into. It's actually not about masturbation at all. It has to do with him not leaving behind what happens when men ejaculate so that this, the woman can get pregnant and have sons so that the family name of this man's other brothers could be carried on and she could have sons and daughters to take care of her in her old age. It, it, it has to do with leveret marriage, which is a complex ancient welfare-based system that most of us don't know about, but it, it basically isn't about that. So you basically have an entire Bible that doesn't comment on any particular sexual practice, except yet in the middle of the Bible, like the closest thing to the centerfold in the Bible, is Song of Songs. And Song of Songs is, is, can be thought of as allegorical between Christ and his church, but what it is is a wedding song which is intensely erotic but nonspecific. So if you read it carefully and you don't blush, I don't know what's wrong with you. Like it is incredibly erotic. Like um, the, just the sorts of things it says, like the imagery of like 
um, like his left hand is under my head and his right arm embraces me, like they're horizontal, okay? Like they're not they're hugging like, weird, you know? Yeah, like, I mean. So anyway, the, the point is, like, you read that, and it's it's very intensely erotically sexual in very very livid kind of ways, and that's in the Bible, and it's the, it's the main thing that the Bible puts forward as the sort of the color and spice of what sex should be like in a married couple. It is to very young married people, so you probably shouldn't think of that as necessarily descriptive of all the seasons of marriage, but it is meant to tell us something about what the sexual relationship is meant to be like. Sorry. Yeah, um, and so in this particular slide, I mean, it's, it's mostly a recapitulation of what we talked about last night. And so I don't want to camp out a lot on that because we want to give you time for Q&A and, and serve you in that way. Um, but um, actually, Nick, why don't you talk about this one? Because this was your framework. Okay, so I want you to know what we're going to do. We're going to go through this. I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, a teleology of pleasure. And then we're going to do like an exercise where I'm going to show you a list of sexual practices. I'm going to say pick one that's on that list that you, you're not immediately sure about. Whether or not you should include it or utilize it. And then I'm going to, you're going to write it down. And then I'm going to go to a list of five questions, theologically from the top, that we can work through to try to sort out theologically if, it's, if you think it, so you can try to make a decision about it. So you can figure out how do you work through these things theologically. Okay? So yes. here, basically, there's three, three layers to what I would say is a, Adam said last night, if you know the purpose of something, you're already halfway there to figuring out the ethics of something. Okay? And so one of the questions that we want to ask ourselves is, we need to understand what's going on in their sexuality. The first step is just command-wise, what does God command or not command? And in Galatians 5, what it says, the purpose of the gospel is, is that the gospel has set, has set us free. It is for freedom that Christ has set you free. And the freedom referred to in Galatians 5 is not freedom from sin, though that is talked about earlier in Galatians and all through Romans. So one of the impacts of the gospel is that you're set free from sin. But you're also set free from the law, literally set free from the rule book. Not necessarily its moral content, but, the, but by living your lives by looking at a list of rules and deciding based on the list of rules. Being free in Christ to live by the Spirit and not by the flesh means you have to make the decisions. That's what that means. That God gives us guidelines and endposts and certain structures, but the literal list of laws, what you will do and what you won't do in the narrow margins of life, is something you have to decide. It is on you to be a virtuously, morally strong enough person to reason through and decide what will be done and what will not be done. Okay? That's part of the weight of freedom. The weight of freedom is responsibility. Right? So you are free in Christ to learn how to be virtuously responsible. Okay? The second step is, okay, you're free in Christ, so then how do you reason through how to use your freedom? In 1 Corinthians 6, the Apostle Paul is reasoning through whether or not you should sleep with prostitutes. Okay, now that may be obvious to you, but if you were a man who grew up in ancient Corinth, you would probably have been going to prostitutes since you were about 12. The, the brothels on the main street, like it's not a big deal. Like guys did this because you don't want to make too many babies, you got to feed them, and it's the ancient world. You don't have a lot of money, right? So what Paul says is, okay, he's like, okay, because the Corinthians say this, Food for the stomach and the stomach for food, but God, God will destroy them both. Meaning, we have sexual organs and sexual drives to have sex. That's what they're for. Sex is for pleasing the desires we have in our sexual organs, and God will destroy them both. Like, we're going to live, we're going to die, and then that's it. Because in pagan Greek religion, that's what happened. You burned up bodies, and they were gone, and that's the end of it, right? And Paul's like, all three of those claims are false, right? So he goes through a list of things you should ask yourself. One, is it beneficial? 
You, you may think that everything's permissible for you. On one sense, it is. You're free in Christ, right? But the question is, what's the next thought that you think is someone who is not going to feed the flesh, but is going to live with virtue and truthfulness towards God in love? Well, the first question is, is it beneficial? Is the thing that I'm going to do good? Will it produce good ends? Does it help me and whoever's affected by it get to where we want to go, right? Two, will it master you? Will it lead to something that will lead to something that will lead to something so that this thing is controlling you rather than you controlling it, right? And third, God will not destroy them both. You are an image-bearing temple of the Holy Spirit that will exist everlastingly. Yeah. Is this thing something an image-bearing temple of the Holy Spirit that will live everlastingly should be doing with their body? Now listen, if you are still under the paradigm emotionally that sex is gross, that third question is going to really screw you up. Okay? Because if you think sex is gross and you're like, should a temple of the Holy Spirit do this? The answer to everything is going to be no. Like, you can't even imagine sex and it being okay, right? So part of it is you've got to get free and that sex is a gift before you can really start answering well the question, is this something that an everlasting image-bearing temple of the Holy Spirit ought to be doing? Does that make sense? And so Paul was like, if the two become one flesh, right, the fundamental meaning metaphysically of sex, then should you have sex with a prostitute as the everlasting temple of the Holy Spirit that are going to do what you got? And the answer is? Probably not, no. right? No, of course not. So, and then the third one then is something that Adam was talking about before, which is teleology or purpose. What is the reason or the perfection for this was, for the reason for which it was created? Why does this exist? What is sex and sexual pleasure, right? And sex is the, the uniting of a number of things in God's creation surrounding our humanity that affirms the covenant. So it's where bonding, pleasure, union, procreation, and everything related to what a marriage is all come together in one place. Yeah. And is, is the consistent renewal of that covenant. Does that make sense? That's what it is. Now, if that's what it is, how should you do it? Does that make sense? Right? Okay, so let me, let's quickly look at a, um, uh, okay, so this thing that I'm gonna do, okay. This is speculative theology, okay? This is some of my thinking that might be totally wrong. All right? But what I'm going to share with you is how I have been trying to think through a theology of sexual pleasure. Okay? How does God want me to please myself and my wife? And how does he want me to enjoy sexual pleasure within my marriage? How do I understand this? And so as I have participated in said acts, um, there are three, the best, the best way I can conceptualize this is I can conceptualize three different sort of modes of sexual pleasure, okay? The first is what I would just term neurological or glandular pleasure, like my body just fires up when my wife acts interested in me, okay? My body's like, oh, I think we gotta get some things rolling here, let's go. And there are like positive neurological, like fun things that go along with it. It's just sort of, just a basic level, okay? The second is what I would call the visceral desire, or you might call um, primal desire. So it would be it would be sort of like this deep, like driving desire to be one with the other person, and it has other things wrapped around it. So like if you if you go outside the church, there's essentially three schools of how to do it. Okay, you may already know this. There's three schools of how to do it. One is the communication school. Talk to each other and tell each other what you like and explore each other together and like communicate about it, right? But before he falls asleep, you know, that, that's what you <laughs> And it's this communication school. Most Christians that are trying to be cool 
are trying to create a courageously communication school. That's right. The second one is um, what I would call the try new things school, which is the like, here's some things made out of rubber and plastic, here's some really slippery jellies, here's some this and that, these things vibrate if you put batteries in them. Like, try some stuff, man, it's fun, right? It's, so it would be like, this would be really with like pornography and, and like sex therapists often talk like this, right? And then the third school is probably um, best conceptualized. There's actually a book written by a woman called, and I'm going to have to spell the second word in the title, Just F-U star star me by this woman. Essentially, the, the idea behind this sexual model is do the thing that comes most primally to you and to both of you. The more you tap into what is most primally male and female in this act of sex, the hotter it will be. So just, just do it. Don't think about everything. Just go for whatever feels the best and just do it. And the more primal you become in it, the more exciting it will be, okay? Now, that third example, I think is, it, what they're getting at is this second thing without talking about, what I would call like the primal desire, which is oftentimes deeply rooted in whatever we feel primally is most male and female about ourselves. This is one of the reasons why Couples like experiment with light dominance and submission within normal sexual practice all the time. And, and I, I don't mean I don't mean like what you like might associate with like whips and I just mean just like the use of strength, the positioning of hips and body, like little things that are like little indicators of like how one is giving themselves to the other, how one is um, is initiating with the other. There's like. There is this, um, with a lot of women that I've talked to about trying to get free sexually, is like, they, they just, they're just still holding something, they're holding something together while they're experiencing sex. Well, that's why a lot of women like in their 40s are like, finally learning how to have sex, right? Like, I'm finally just letting go and just doing it, and just being a woman, right? What does that mean, right? Well, a lot of it actually has to do functionally with trust, which is gonna get to the third thing. But some of it is just like, women who are like, I think I finally am doing it like a woman. Right? So there, there's, there's that one, okay? And then there's what I would call affection desire, which is it, it matters the individual person. So in the second level, it could almost be any woman or any man on the other side of you. Right? Like it's, it's so deeply just male-female drawn together in the primal nature of sexual intercourse that it almost doesn't matter who the woman is. Right? On this level, it absolutely matters who it is. Like, it is it's, the, it's that person that has walked with you through this and that and that other thing, that has borne you these many children, that has walked with you this many years, that has put up with all your crap, that has helped you through the things, that has been with you through thick and thin, that has, like, stuck with your budget when she didn't want to. Like, all, it's that person that you're making love to. And they have been with you through everything. They mean so much to you, okay? Now, here's my view. My view is, is that in the world, nobody thinks this is going to make sex hotter. So what happens is that they turn to the broadening expression of this to make sex hotter. Now when you do that, what you have to do is essentially exaggerate the dictates of maleness and femaleness. So instead of just the normal dominance of the male acting initiatorily in sex and the woman embracing that initiation and responsiveness, now what you've got to do is you've got to amp up the role of domination and submission to things that are actually deviant. In order to, and you know what that feeling is. Like insects, you know that feeling. It's kind of like this weird, like, it's like really hot, 
It usually doesn't last very long because things are over real fast. But it's just kind of like, it's super exciting, but it doesn't increase the transformational longing that transfigures your partner into a god. Okay? When, you, when this is at the center, lining up these desires, especially for, I, well, I know this is true for men. I, I can't say a whole lot about women. But the, what will normally happen with a man is that if you focus on affection to primal desire, to the neurological potential of sex, what happens is your wife becomes a goddess when you're having sex with her. She like, it's, it's almost like she transfigures into this thing that's like, like you would do anything for her. Like you would take over a continent, you would cut off your leg, like you, there's nothing, there's no promise you wouldn't say. Like in fact, you, I remember watching a TV show years ago and there was this older African-American woman talking to this younger African-American woman who was pregnant and the guy had left her. And she said, he said he loved me. He said he would always be with me. He said he would be with me forever. And the older woman goes, did he say that when you were having sex? No. And she said, yes. Right? Because that's what happens in sex. And that's what's supposed to happen in sex. And I think you only get that transfiguration when you line this up with this up with this. You can maximize this. But the woman especially is only going to feel safe and loved and adored when it's running through this. When she absolutely knows it must be her and no other woman yeah. that you are treating maximally like a woman and where she can release herself to be maximally a woman. And that increases all those things. And this makes the emotional experience of sex deeper, which increases its overall pleasure without having to lead to deviance. So that you can have a sexual relationship that can go on for 30, 40 years, and it still feels exciting and fun and interesting and like you're not missing out on anything. Does that make sense? Now listen, I don't know how you're reacting to that. You might think it's full crap. You might be like, oh my gosh, how did I not know that? You might think, like, we should try that tonight. You might feel really hurt for how you've been treated. I don't know. But listen, nobody ever told me that. I'm 40. I'm 40 years old. No one has ever in my life even tried to give me a conceptualization of sexual pleasure. Okay. That's why we're doing this thing. So that's, that's just a sh I'm just taking that as a shot at trying to figure that out. So then what I'm going to do as a human being is I'm going to try to use that to figure out what I ought to be doing. And my experience over the last 10 years is that that's been incredibly enriching and has left me really fulfilling. This also explains all of the sociological and statistical data which backs this up, which is if you are in uh, people who are in healthy, long-term, marriages experience much, much, much higher re reporting of <clears throat> uh, pleasure in sex than those who just have a bunch of random partners and have sex more frequently, uh, but obviously given this, uh, given this setup far less deeply. Yeah. Okay, so we're doing exercise. I want you to look at this list and I want you to pick something that you're really not sure about. So not sure about the ethics of. The ethics of, like, should I, if I did this, should I do this in my marriage relationship, or if I'm your single, if in my hopefully upcoming one or whatever, right? So some of you might be like, oh, that's totally fine. Some of you might be like, that is not okay. Okay, try to pick one that's like in the middle third grader for you. Like, I don't, I don't know. And don't do the exercise with your spouse because men will lie. Okay. Um, <laughs> So pick something that's like for you, and then what we're gonna do is I'm gonna put up a slide with like five questions on it to try to work through that question for you and see if you can kind of sort out what you might think. Does that make sense? 
Okay, now, and now listen. One thing that I also want to tell you is this. Because God has left you free to choose on these things, there may be times where you may do something and it doesn't feel right. On a conscientious level. Like in the, in the realm of conscience. And you should not do it again until you sort that out. At least. Maybe you should do it again all but you at least shouldn't do it again until you sort that out. And men and women should be very open to their partner being like, I don't even know why that didn't feel right, but it did it. And you should be like, okay. Yes. Do you want to talk about it, or do you want to think about it yourself for a while before you talk about it? Okay. So has everybody got something? Do you have something? In your head, you know which one. I don't, don't be vague here. You need to have one of these in your head right now. Okay, great. All right, so let's run it through these, like this theological grid. Okay, one, does your feeling about this practice make it seem that you think it's gross, that you think sex is gross, a God or a gift? So like, think about how you feel about this practice. Does how you feel about this practice say anything to you in relation to those first, that first three Like is it, is it, does it really realize that you actually think sex is gross? Or that you're like, oh, I really, if, I, if I can do this, then I'll be sexually fulfilled. Well, maybe that actually tells you that you think sex is a god, right? So, so run through that grid first. Hopefully that's a pretty simple one. It may not reveal anything. Two, um, where is your desire to do this coming from? Is it, is it from that second visceral level where you're like, you want to heat this thing up, but like, why do you want to heat it up that? And why that way, right? Yeah, this is really where, uh, especially those of you who've had a, uh, experiences with pornography or sexual abuse or, or a, a deviant expression of sex, um, you might find creeping into your marriage um, a desire to do a thing that comes from a very dark place. And so you, this sometimes takes a lot of self-reflection to get to. Like, why, why do I you know, want to ask my partner to do X? Um, and Lord, is that, a, is that coming from a good place? Could you show me? Um, or is it coming from a place that I is really connected to pain in my flesh or something that I, I really need to see brought under the Lordship of Jesus, not expressed? Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So for some of you, that, that means there might be practice A on this list. That for some of you, it's like, no, it, it's not coming from a dark place at all. And for others of you, like, it's totally coming from a dark place, and you should run from it. That's, again, that's conscience, which is why what Nick is saying is when your conscience, conscience tells you don't do it, even if your reasoning is like, why not? Conscience is like, just trust me, don't do it. And when reason is like, nah, I'm not going to trust you, you become morally warped because your conscience is your moral sensory organ. It just tells you what's right and wrong without knowing why. And if you, if you violate that thing long enough, it won't work well. So. Yeah, I remember listening to a podcast with like a bisexual, extremely promiscuous woman who had a lot of partners, and she said, she said, I can always tell within the first like five minutes of a sexual encounter if the guy has watched porn. Because guys who haven't watched porn have sex totally differently than guys who have. Wow. And she's like, it's just so, it's so obvious just the way like they kiss you and stuff. And um, I just thought that was like, wow. Mm. But, but like, you, you guys, you know that ladies, you probably already do. Um, but that, like, there's, yeah, like Adam said, there's some things that, like, one of the reasons why we tell people not to watch pornography is because it's wrong, because it destroys women's lives. There's lots of reasons. But one of them is it poisons sexual practices that might otherwise be permissible and good and useful and helpful and beneficial. And, yeah. But yet, once they've been poisoned by your participation in the 
like the objectification of pornography, it's very difficult for you to do those practices without them having a working function of objectification in your relationship with your sexual partner, which they will definitely feel. Yeah. That makes sense? Okay, let's move on to the third one. Three, does it naturally line up with the three levels of sexual meaning when done as a sexual ritual? I'm talking about the second thing we looked at. So like, you're free in Christ, is it beneficial? Will it enslave you? Is it something that an image-bearing, spirit-filled, everlasting creature should be doing? And to remember, sex is essentially a ritual. Right? It is a drug-induced, shared drug-high, spiritual, metaphysical bonding ritual. So, um, you're doing something when you do it more than just the sex. Do you all know what he means when he says drug-induced? This is not an endorsement, don't use drugs. It means your brain is producing, just for those of you who are looking at your phone for a second, um, it just means your brain is throwing out a whole lot of different chemicals uh, to get you to go along with it. Sorry, carry on. Yeah. I saw a couple of people go, wait, we can do what? It, uh, and it, you were, it's designed to cause bonds. Yes. And so if you do it in certain ways, See, like, if you do it in a way that, like, for example, you're doing something that isn't, doesn't actually build trust, it actually makes your partner feel a little bit objectified, and then you do this with these chemical responses in your body that are meant to cause bonding, when you're actually doing something that is destroying the trust of bonding in the act itself, it's creating this functional dissonance that's actually wrecking the whole system, yeah. right? Only when you're doing something that's loving and trust-building and like meaningful for both of you and where you're engaging in it together, that when all that other psychological stuff is happening, it's all working in the same direction to bring you together into co-worship. Yeah. Right? Remember, the old marriage vows had in it um, like the wives like, I will obey you, right? But it, you know what else used to have in it? With my body, I do worship, was the vow. With my body, I do worship. Because the understanding was that Sex is, is functionally, in its most positive sense, co-worship. Now, there's a God higher than that God, which it ought to be done in relationship to that God. But the purpose of it is what separates your wife or your husband from all others is that they are worshipped in sex in a way that no other one is. That's one of the reasons why monogamy is essential. And it's one of the reasons why virginity is important. Because even, even past co-worship has present significance, right? You can overcome it, but it matters, right? Okay. Four. Do you want to comment? No. Okay. Four. If you have an emotional or instinctual aversion, do you know why? And then five. Is doing something quote different, like a spice up, spice it up different, a substitution for the freedom that comes from absolute trust and emotional surrender in the act of sex? Now, one of the reasons why I've said a bunch about trust is that theologically, morally, trust is highly important. But trust is also highly sexually important in terms of enjoyment and function, hmm. right? Especially for women. One of the reasons why way more than 50% of women, even in marriage, have never had a like, vaginal intercourse orgasm is partly because guys can be a little quick, but it's also, it's also partly because there has to be a very, very high level of personal surrender in a woman during sex for her to like release herself in a kind of way in which she can experience a lot of the pleasures of sex that she's meant to. And, and one, of the, one of the reasons why promiscuous life and like all the sexual crap we have is so difficult 
is it destroys the future sex life of women in particular. Now, it destroys the sex life of men also, but in a different way. Men tend to get out of a performance complex, which tends to lead to poor male sexual performance. So it actually destroys it both ways, because women are harder to please because they have a harder time fully giving themselves in trust. And so it takes them like 15 hours to work themselves up to anything great, right? Meanwhile, the guys know that their masculinity is so profoundly bound to their sexual performance, which is mainly getting a woman to orgasm, right? That they're really nervous. Well, what happens to men when they're nervous in terms of their sexual performance? Like it's performance, it's like 30 seconds long, right? And like, boom, like they're done, right? Because they're nervous. So what you get is like women were harder to please, men firing off in 20 seconds, and like everybody's kind of disappointed. And that's partly because of what we've done to trust and meaning. Men don't trust that if they're not a great performer, you're gonna adore them in your sexual life with them for the rest of your life. And anything they do with you, you're going to receive with love. And women have a very hard time giving themselves 100% in complete openness, huh. which is incredibly necessary for a high level of sexual satisfaction, right? And so like, when you start to get some of these things in mind, you begin to realize that promiscuity is like this big robbery train. Yeah. When it seems like you're just practicing for marriage, you're gonna be better at it. You're not gonna be better at it. You're screwing it up, man. And listen, if you have, if you've engaged in a lot of that, look, it's fine, like God heals people, and you can heal from that. You can learn to fully give yourself to your husband, even though maybe all the other guys you're with were not trustworthy. But you can find him, and he can be found to be trustworthy. Yeah. But listen, if you marry a girl who's been through a lot of that crap, you have to walk with her, and you have to wait, and you have to let her be patient. You have to pray with her and talk with her about it, and pay for counseling if she wants to go to it. Like, there's, like, this stuff, you, you bought that, man. Like, when you married that girl, you picked her, and it's like, Aladdin, you get it, everything that goes with it, you know? And you've got to embrace that. That's your job. That's what a, a man does, is he, like, in the bedroom, at least, he creates a space of protection and provision for his wife. And that may be what it takes. And for men, like, like you may marry a dude where like, he's having a hard time. And you may have to be like, look, relax, man. I'm here to be with you. I'm not, I didn't come here for like some trapeze, like Barna and Bailey, like I can't remember my name, thinking orgasms crap. Like I, I married you because I wanted to walk through life with you. And this is part of the fun of it, right? And like. Barnum and Bailey. <laughs> I know it's hard, but it feels nice to make fun of the posters. Anyway. <laughs> Alright, so, okay. Okay, so I'm going to take a little chance here. As you work through this in your mind, was, did that help you move in any direction on the thing that you got in your head? Yes. Like, raise your hand if you found it helpful. Okay. All right, it's about 50 50. Okay, so great. Well, the good news is we've got some time to talk. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I'm stuck on. <clears throat> yeah, so, sometimes I would call this the athletification of sex, which yeah. is like the idea that what sex is for is orgasms. Yeah. If what sex is for is orgasms, then how good a lover you are is the most important thing. Yeah. And, like, as far as I can tell, that not only ruins the emotional and spiritual realities of sexuality is metaphysical components, but it actually ruins performance. Yeah. Most men, most, it ruins most male performance and yeah. female acceptance of that performance. Yeah. So, and then it works for you too in similar ways. You have to, 
learn to trust your spouse in such a way that you're not there to take from her sexual pleasure for yourself, but rather you're there to give yourself wholly over to, just, just as uh, there are so many things that can destroy uh, a woman's ability to trust uh, in, in sexual intimacy. Similarly, pornography trains you to hunt and gather sexual pleasure. And, and the, the sexualizing of everything trains you, men particularly, that Man, you just gotta get it where you can find it and, and make yourself as, as pleasured as possible. And like, you know, hopefully she'll come along for the ride. And, and that's, that's just the, op again, I'm just to put it back in the context of the Christian story, that's just the opposite of the way Jesus treats us. It's the opposite of the way God treats us. He doesn't come to take anything from us, but to give himself fully um, to us. And so when Paul says something like, so dudes love your wives as Christ loves the church and gave himself fully for her, that's part of what that means. So, like in this framework, if you think about like any one of these practices, and you go back to these five questions, does it seem gross, God, or gift to you? Why do you want to do it? When you do it, does it line up with those three desires? Um, do you have some emotional aversion to it? Do you know why? And is doing something different a substitute for absolute trust? Like you're trying to spice things up because you're not willing to deal with your own issues? Or is it like a way that you want to be closer to your spouse. Those, that, that's the framework. And so some of the, that means some of these things are, are going to be absolutely, you know, some of the things up here are, are never permissible to say no. <laughs> um, some of the things up here, many of them go in a, a box of, well, perhaps, and some of them go in the box of like, yeah. So perhaps it would be helpful if we moved on to that part of our... Yeah, so do you want to, so we can't go through the list and we can try to, we could like talk through some of these or we go straight to just whatever question you want to ask. Which would you prefer? You want to go through the list? How many want to go through the list? Okay, how many want to go straight to Q&A? How many are embarrassed to raise your hand? <laughs> yes. like, I don't have opinions right. on this. Yeah. All right, um, okay, so number one, uh, so we'll do, we'll do permissible, uh, well, I'm not sure. Not permissible. Okay. Number one. You actually have four categories here. I know I do. Oh, okay. Oh yeah. So okay. So I have a list. I have my list. Like I'm on the record. Okay. I have. Sounds good. Okay. Yeah. I'm not too sure about that. Be really dang careful. I counsel against it. No. Church discipline required if there's no repentance. Yes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So. Uh, biblically speaking, the most direct two are yes, have sexual intercourse, and yes, actually embrace each other in it. And in 20 years of pastoral ministry, I have never counseled a man whose wife would have sex with him and who clearly wanted to be having sex with him, who was upset with his sexual life at all. Okay, those two things. Like, ladies, I'm just going to give to you right now. If you want your husband, your, your future husband, to like your sexual life, okay? A, have sex with them on a relatively frequent basis. Martin Luther counsel twice a week, yes. Whatever, figure it out. It's not, not more than twice a month, okay? So, um, and then for the average guy, for the average guy, just naturally, it's about every three days is what he's gonna want. Okay, so just figure out what you're gonna do. And you'll actually feel it. Right afterwards, you'll just feel he's relationally closer to you, and you'll feel the orbit get a little bit wider as the longer it is. Like, my, my wife actually tells me all the time, she's just like, I know. 
Like she's doing. She's like, she's like the next one. You just jump up and take out the trash. What can I do for you? Like we just feel so close. And it's true. And then the second thing is, and then the second thing is like the main thing a man wants during sex is for you to desire. That's like the number one thing. Like you can, yeah. you could be like 600 pounds. You can like not have done your makeup. Like there could be all kinds of things that you think are not optimal about you. Okay, but like some of the, some of the men most in anguish over their sex lives were men who married gorgeous women, who had been treated like sexual objects since puberty, and who saw sex as a function of power, and saw not giving their husbands sex as the way to get what they wanted in their marriage, and they were like they hated their sex lives. And some of the best men who had some of the best sex lives were like overweight programmers, but like overweight women who like, like loved to have sex with them. And they just be like, I just give it to my husband. Everybody wants me to do it. And like, these guys were like, I got no complaints, man. It's awesome. Right? Um, show, like if you show your desire, like, but, but part of that is, is like you have to love your husband. You have to love him as an individual man and the kind of man he is and everything he's done for you and everything that you love about him and you need to channel that into the sexual experience and you need to express it physically toward him during the act of sex. And if you do that, he, he's probably gonna really like it. Okay, and that's, and if, if you do those two things, like I still have been past for 20 years, I have not found a couple that was having sexual problems, at least from the man's side. I'm just gonna asterisk that. Sex is both upstream and downstream from your emotional state. So like, in some instances, it's the thermometer. Like, your sex life tells you how your marriage is. But it's also the thermostat. So it's like, well, you know, we're just not feeling super close. And like, well, maybe do that practice of intimacy that God gave you more frequently. And you might find, you know, a month later, like, you are closer. Because this is the, the I mean, this is to the marriage what communion is to the church. Like, it's the sacrament. It's the holy sacrament that's meant to practice your intimacy. And so if you're like, well, I'm only going to have sex when we feel super, super close, that's great as long as you're in like an upward spiral of intimacy, but when you know, something bad happens and that goes down, then it's just gonna get worse and worse until one of you, you know, cries uncle and gives, and, and that's no good. So um, it, it's not just, okay, get all your feelings in order and then go into the bedroom. It's, it, it, it works on both sides of that experience for some reason, I don't know why, um, but and it does. Generally speaking, that is an area where the wife usually has to lead because the thing about guys is like, it doesn't matter how mad I am at you, I still want to have sex, right? Like, I mean, most guys are like, you can have an argument for like two hours and the argument's over and like it's 10 o'clock and they're like, I'm doing it. <laughs> right, I mean, it's, it's usually when they're like, no, I hate you right now, like, are you kidding me? Don't touch me. All of this is purely hypothetical for Nick though, he's read this in books. Um, <laughs> He and Lexi never argue. Never. Everything is no, fine. No, but like, I, no, I will say this about our marriage because it's 20 years ago. But like, when we, when we, the first year we got married, when I went right to seminary, I started studying 16 hour days. She was working seven And very quickly, um, our relationship was going very poorly. And one of the things that I look back now and say, it set us up for recovery, was that we actually never stopped making love at some particular interval. Because that, like, like it kept, like, at some point she was like, yeah, things aren't great. You're my husband. I'm your wife. Like, that's what we are. And we would have, we would be both. So like, and that kept us close enough so that when we started to work harder to turn it around, like we weren't so alienated with resentment towards each other that there was something to work from. Does that yeah. make sense? Yeah. Um, 
Okay, there's something else about it. Okay, but we said we're going to do Yes, that. go ahead. Okay. So, the so first one, non-face-to-face positions. Okay, so this would be anytime you're having sex where you're not, the windows are solely towards each other, right? So you're, you're not, if you opened your eyes, you aren't looking at each other, okay? So, some of those positions are considered hot. They're, most guys want to try, to try them on some level, the question is what level, and in what ways, right? So, okay, so let's, let's be intentionally negative in order to try to think clearly. So. If that was wrong, or if there, if there was a liability here, let's say it was still okay to do, but there's a liability that you need to know about, what would the liability be? This is just what What would the liability be? What could be wrong with that? Yeah? If um, the desire comes from watching pornography, okay. that could be a red flag. Okay, great. From watching pornography, yep. You're objectifying the experience. It's not about unity. It's about some... Thing. Okay, objectifying the experience. It, how do, how would that objectify the experience? Yeah. When you're showing that, it, it's a it can be shown as a dominance. Okay, so some of those positions tend to be strong dominance positions. What else? Yeah. You should be thinking about someone else. You can easily be thinking about somebody else because you are no longer looking at their directly face. engaging yes. the other person like facially, personally, right? Yes, that's true. Anybody else? Yeah. Um, this is from a, like. Uh, science point of view, mm -hmm. <clears throat> and it's that when you have your orgasm, uh, your brain kind of like takes a picture of that. Right, right. Mm -hmm. it to the orgasm. Right. So like if you're not looking at that person when that happens, um, it's going to be harder for you to get to that point while looking at that person. Yeah. Right. Right. There's no transfiguration effect because you're not looking at that. Right. Yep. Yep. Good. Anybody else? Okay. So. Does that rule it out? No. Okay. See, see, I, I, got, look, I don't have answers for you, okay? Like, the Bible doesn't literally say. However, one of the, one of the things that I will do, like, in counseling situations, if somebody says, there's a few of these where I will say, if you choose to do them, pick a percentage, and it should be that or less percentage of your sexual interactions. So in non-facial positions, the percentage that I encourage for people is 12%. I know that sounds totally arbitrary. I totally agree. <laughs> I, I know, I know, I know. But like, not that often. Could you, could you show your math on that? Yeah. <laughs> 10 to 50%. So like, because it has these liabilities, right? Have any of you ever done the division necessary to discover <laughs> in your own? Begging for spurning sex. Like, what are the li positives liabilities there? Is that what we're talking about? Yeah. Begging for and spurning sex. So, like, okay, listen, you might think this is a dumb one, but, like, this is actually what comes with counseling a lot. This is, like, maybe 50% of sexual counseling is the dynamic of somebody wants sex, the other person doesn't want to give it. And let me, let me just tell you. Um, That's not on your list. There's an enormous amount of resentment that comes up. When somebody wants to be into it with somebody they are married to, because listen, if they're married to you, they've sworn off every single other human being on planet Earth so that they can have sex with you. And then you want sex with It sucks, man. Like, and you you promised with your body you would worship, like you promised to cherish them. If the sex is part of the marriage thing, you're you're in the other marriage stuff. You're like, I still gotta go to work. Or if you're a woman, you're like, I'm still doing the, your freaking laundry and like wiping your kids' sweats and nutty noses. Like, what's going on here? Like, this is part of it. And they're right, right? But at the same time, 
if one of the partners that is like kind of spreading it feels abused, or maybe they haven't dealt with some stuff, or like your relationship is really going poorly, and you refuse to, to interact with them on a level in which it's really going poorly, and so they feel like they're being spurned, spreading sex may be the only way they feel like they can do something about it, they might not even know that's why they're doing it. Right? So there may be times where it's appropriate to tell your partner, look, I, look, I, I think it would be the wrong thing for me to have sex with you. I feel like it's I feel like it's denying something. I, I would feel really I feel really objectified by it right now because I've been trying to talk to you about something you just won't engage with me and now you want to engage in this level. But but um, especially in some situations with some women folk, that can become a pattern, right? And so this is another place where like I'd say um, use a percentage in your head to like gauge what you're doing, right? Like if you're saying no 78% of the time. Right, that could be the issue. Oh, sorry, seventy or seventy percent. Right, see what I'm saying? Like, if, it's more like, or ask yourself, what's my default? Yeah. What's my default? If your default is no, you you need to grapple with that somehow. Does that make sense? Yes, and fundamentally, this is bad because you're using sex as a power tool, like like as a power play, and and that's not what it's for. This actually agrees with the culture story about what sex is. It's, it's for power. And um, it should never be used as, as leverage inside of your marriage, ever, to, be man, like, to use as a manipulative tool. OK, number three quickies. So I'll just define this. This is, let's just do it really quick. <laughs> <laughs> that's the, I think that that's the like, a, like APA like, diagnostic five definition. Okay, so, what is the what is the liability of like cookies? So that this could be like either one partner's not totally into it, but you don't want to really say no. And you're like, okay, let's let's roll, right? And like, I gotta go, I gotta go to sleep. I'm getting up early. Just make this happen, okay? Like, like what is like anybody married over ten years knows what I'm talking about, okay? So what? Yeah, back you, you never get to that bottom level of the pyramid where you're having that connection. Yeah, good. Yeah. Good. It doesn't feel like a really deep connection, but it is. It only meets one person's needs. It only meets one person's needs. Good. Okay. Are there any positives? What are the positives? The kids don't walk in. The kids Efficient use of time. Yeah, efficient use of time. Yes. <laughs> say anybody, I'm sorry, anybody that's raised children and kept a busy life, I, I don't mean nothing. It's better than nothing, right? I mean, it's a better reality. It, it's, it's, it literally says it. Like every time. It's a it's giant it's, thing, you know. It's yeah, it says in First Corinthians 7, don't deprive each other unless you intentionally together take a break to pray. And you're kind of like, why you do you do both? Like, why do you do sex, right? And, well, part of the answer is, is, like, you can only do so many things in a day, and when you get in a really busy family life, like, sometimes it feels that way. Like, you get the end of the day, you finally have your door locked, your kids are finally in bed, and, like, you're freaking tired. And you can either meaningfully pray together, or you have sex, or you can fall immediately asleep. Those are your three options. But you're not doing more than two of the non-sleeping options, or more than one of the non-sleeping options, right? <laughs> and so it really ends up like, that's real experience. Like, yeah. you have to be praying for you're doing, you, that's real. Okay, yeah, any, any, other, any other positives? Like, so, one of the negatives was you only meet one person's needs. One of the positives is 
You only need, you need one person's needs, right? <laughs> Anything else? Well, yeah, it's kind of fun sometimes. Yeah. It's kind of fun sometimes? Yeah. Yeah? Okay. I just thought that one had that though. Hey, we should move on. Um, right. So, so. I feel like the room's okay with this one. Let's move to a more. Okay, so I, I do want to give my advice on this one. So, uh, I advise a 35% rule. What? <laughs> It's for, it's, for that, it's for that bonding reason. It's for the bonding reason. If you Just. are doing that too often, then then you're like you're actually spreading out your major significant bonding, focused bonding sexual experiences, and I don't think that's good. Okay. Your Bible has so much more algebra than mine. <laughs> okay, so cyber sex would be one of the partners is out of town, and you like fire up Skype to mutually masturbate. Oh, um. All right, let's put them together. So, four is, wow. four is in person. So, four is in person, and five is not in person. Okay, so, what are the negatives? Yeah, you can you can never run for public office. Yeah. Yeah. Alright, any other? Any others? Oh my word. Yeah. Um, by watching a video screen and getting satisfaction by watching a screen and masturbating when you're watching it could lead you to something. Yeah, yeah. Good. He said looking at a screen, interacting with a screen sexually is maybe that can lead you other places. It, it could be like well ultimately master you could right. could affect that yeah. Especially if you had a history of watching pornography. Yeah. Huh. What else? Men are like Microsoft Paint, and women are more like mastering Adobe Photoshop. One of the ways in which one of the ways in which um, sometimes Christians will utilize these is like if you have a strong conviction about this, but you like your your husband is kind of a sex machine, and you just don't want to do minus seven, minus seven days. Like somewhere in the middle there, sometimes there's one of those kinds of interactions, and um, husbands are often extremely appreciative of such things. And this is especially the case in like, um, like there, I, I know some couples where the woman is like, look, you just want to sex all the time. I kind of wish you would just go masturbate. And sometimes my response to her is like, I don't know if that's what you really want. Um, and so, especially if men have a history, because yeah. masturbation can move into marriage, and like men can control that more than you can control. Like it's it's kind of it can be humiliating to have sex with a woman and her not to really seem to get that much out of it, even if you do. And it's it's not humiliating to masturbate, and at least in that way. And so, like 
Generally speaking, I don't think you want your husband masturbating. And so, without you, at least. And so you being involved in it can be better than you not being involved in it. And you just gotta like, like look at that and decide, is it an act of sacrificial love to do that for him? And like, is that good or is it not? Or maybe it's good for him to fast for seven days. Like maybe that's good. Like who need, like maybe it's bad for you to get sex that often. Like I've had situations where I'm like, this is how good my, my like, I'm sorry that I haven't suffered more, but like, some of them like, you know, I just need to fast for a while because like, I, I feel like I'm just eating brownies all the time. Like, this is bad. So, so like, sometimes it is good to have like a sexual fast because you kind of need to know where, like, hey, you know how like you walk outside and you're like, I'm freezing, and you're like, when did I get so weak? Like, if you're in a married relationship, you have a wonderful sex life. Like, sometimes it get, you'd be surprised at how like weak you're getting in terms of your sexual self-control because you're just used to being satisfied all the time. And so sometimes you actually need like a dry spell, and, and usually guys, I think you ought to initiate that because usually you're the ones that. It usually goes along with actual fasting because no one wants to have sex with you and you have fasting breath. That's, there's something about it. But this one, like if somebody's got to go for like like five months somewhere, like you need to think about whether or not there actually is a way in which you need to serve each other, and that way maybe there's a way God can use that in a way that's like wholesome enough given the negative realities of the situation, okay? All right. Um, this is commanded against in the law, right? Now, the, the question <laughs> They didn't know that. It is commanded against in the Levitical law. Yeah, now you know. totally in Leviticus it says don't do that. Yeah. So the question is, are you allowed to do it or not? And then obviously Galatians 5 is, we are not under the law. Okay, so then the question is, is there something about the original? Because <coughs> don't murder in the law, right? And you're not under the law, but you're still not allowed to murder people, right? So there are moral commands in the law that are reinstituted by the law of love and by like the teleology of Christ's kingdom. So the question is, you have to ask yourself is, is there something in the teleology of things and what, what they mean that this should not be engaged in, right? And that's one of the ones I think is kind of up for conscience. Like, I. Yes, you, you have it under your uh, not-too-sure category. Um, yeah, I, for me, I'd say that's a conscience. If anyone would like to take this and put it on the internet, I, uh, <laughs> I accept okay, so direct thing? contributions. Sex in non-secure places or sex in secure places. Okay. So a non-secure place would be you have children, you're in the bedroom, the door's closed, but it's not locked. Okay. A non-secure place would be you're in your car in a place you think is sufficiently rural. A non-secure place would be like on a part of the beach that is pretty secluded, all right? A insecure place is a place that is designed to make the sex more exciting because you could be found out. Okay, so like just outside the hotel when there's no drunk girls walking by at that moment or something. All right, so what about those? Is this, is this? Okay, they seem, both seem pretty selfish. I'm a child that walked in on my parents because there was no door shut at all. Yeah. How's that for you? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I have heard multiple stories. I don't know if you've heard this too, Adam. Of very young kids seeing their parents having sex, and in the eyes of a three, four, five, six-year-old, it it looks like the father's abusing them. And so they walk away thinking their daddy abuses their mommy, and you wouldn't ever know to clear that up. 
And so it's in their head for years. And, it, and once they realize you're having sex, they don't, their mind can't go back and say, oh wait, all that was wrong. What happens is then sex can get lumped into that abuse idea, and that mean just runs through their mind. And it can be extraordinarily destructive. So, like, trying to keep, so you might be, well, until they're 12, it's no big deal. Well, at 12, it'll gross them out. But at like five, it could actually mess with their heads in ways you don't want. Okay, and other, other ideas. Yeah. Well, like at unsecured places, it's just anywhere that's unsecured, like you said, beach or something. And I would just never want anybody to see my gift that's my wife in that position. Yeah. Or even the opportunity for them to see her. Like right. There's something sacred about the privacy of sex, right? It is, it's union is unique. Yeah. You, yeah, and you can see that in Song of Songs, that even though it's highly erotic, there's always like, let's get away to this private place, let's hide over here, let's be with each other. E even in the Song of Songs, their, mm -hmm. their names are not written. I mean, we sort of assume, but they're not, like even the song itself is somewhat private. Yeah. yeah. I was just saying, it seems like it's appealing a lot more at the visceral level than the Right, especially the second one. Like, this one is like, I'm too lazy to get up and lock the door. So you know, like, you need to get up and lock the door, right? But this is kind of like, this one is, see, that's why I make these different. Because this is kind of irresponsible, right? Or you might be in a situation where like you can't get 100% security, but it seems like it's good enough, right? This one is actually, has a kind of like voyeuristic kind of thing to it. Like the fact that you can get caught is part of the excitement. And then the question is, is that a theologically, teleological gospel? Like, no, it's not. And so like this one, I would be like, no, you don't do that. That makes sense. All right. What about oral sex? Everybody wants to talk about that one. Right? That's, yeah. Oral sex is the one most commonly that people are really sure about their answer and they have different answers. <laughs> right? So what would be, what are, what are some of the negatives for oral sex? Same as the not face-to-face one. Same as not face-to-face, -face, right? It could occasion objectification. You're not looking at the person in the face. What else? Um, well, for a lot of people who've had a history with this act, and if you've had a history with this act outside of marriage, it can be extraordinarily degrading kinds of situations. Yeah. It's hard, especially for women, not to pull that in to their marriage relationship if they've had those. Yeah. I, more than half of the women that I know that have, even, even some that have been virgins that got married in terms of intercourse, have performed oral sex on more than one guy, and they found it extraordinarily degrading. And so that even if you're like, well, it's not, it doesn't have to be that degrading, it could be, it could be like, where you're serving the sexual desires of your partner, if that's what they want, like, yeah, but be careful, because your partner may have felt, like, really degraded by that in other previous relationships. So this is, this is one where sexual history can be extremely important. Okay. Can I point something out, how often this has come up? Uh, you've got to talk and care for each other and each other's histories deeply. Like, sex isn't just about, oh, great, now I'm married, and so I get to, like, have fun with this person, and yeah, but it's with this person, and their history, and their story, and um, and and so I, I just I want to encourage you, pay attention to the cues that your husband or wife are giving you because it might. I mean, I know in 15 years of marriage, Hope and I, we've we've had. Like I've caught cues just even in convert, like not even in the bedroom, just in conversation, things that I can see like, oh, there's a flicker of pain around this topic or this idea. And years later, it will come out as, oh yeah, that's connected to some deep, you know, 
root or dysfunction or something that happened in her family or like something in the past. Same thing for me. And so it, all of this, I mean, sex is designed to help you love one another better, right? So you have to pay attention to each other when answering these questions because you, I mean, presumably, like you would never ask your spouse to do something that would bring up some terribly painful emotional scar from their past just because it's something that you think would be fun to do. Yeah, but, but like oftentimes where there is issues from the past, they don't even know it. Yeah, yeah. Like most of our sexual scars or traumas or things that hurt oftentimes aren't even sexual, but they have to do with how we see ourselves, which then affects our sexuality. And like so many people are bringing psychological things into the bedroom that they don't even know. Yeah. And so um, it, it can be really difficult to figure out what they are. And if you don't work really hard at it, it'd be like it, decades go by before. Yeah. And you don't really know what's going on. Um, it is fairly common for um, couples to say that, like, in their middle 40s, they're starting to be really free in the bedroom, like, of all this crap. And although that's nice because it's great for your 40s, like, there is no reason in principle that couldn't happen when they were 25. They just didn't do it. They didn't face the stuff. Yeah. And so they lived with it for 14 years. Okay. Um, any positives for this one? I think there are some. I think what she's arguing without saying explicitly is sometimes um, oral sex on the woman is more effective than trying to manually stimulate a woman towards orgasm. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. I think that's actually usually right. Um, it can be an extension of worshiping her whole body. Okay, an extension of worshiping her whole body. Yeah, like in lovemaking, like it's okay to kiss more than the mouth. Like there's this joke. Why does the French the French man kiss a woman on the hand, right? Why does the French man kiss a woman on the hand? Because he has to start somewhere. Right? <laughs> and so like, <laughs> like lovemaking is supposed to involve a certain amount of creativity, and you are supposed to like interact with like the person's whole body. And if you only interact with the overlay, like chest touching chest, like touching less genital, touching genital space, then. Like, there's actually a whole lot more romantic exploration that can happen in sexuality that is entirely wholesome, as far as I can tell. Um, and so that might be a sort of part of it, right? Okay, others? Yeah? Satisfying a partner when the other one is okay Yeah, yeah, like when you start reading statistics on how many women are actually able to have um, orgasms during intercourse, like, we men, we pretty much win every time, right? And so, like, if you're if your female spouse doesn't, then what are your options? Like if you wanted to experience that, well they're limited and they, they there's some kind of non, other kind of stimulation is necessary, right? And you oftentimes oral sex is the seems to be the most effective or one of the most effective. So yeah, I mean, it, it's funny because like, who usually talks about oral sex? Like guys want oral sex. But like, where is it actually usually the most functionally useful for the disparities of what actually happens during sex Actually, the vast majority of time is the other way around, right? Um, which is, yeah, so there it is. Um, so, uh, yeah, there it is, okay. So, um, I put anal sex on there because there are actually a number of Christian books written in the last decade where the argument was you can do anything that's consensual, anal sex when consensual and 
um, done in a certain way is perfectly safe, and therefore Christians can engage in it. And I'm just going to tell you right off the top that I have a huge problem with that. Um, I think it's, I just think it's a, that's really bad advice. Um, but I'm still willing to go through the process if you want to. Um, I, I have to say, they, I have a they want you to. So teleologically, teleologically, right? It's not the ordering of the sexual things. It's like a woman doesn't get more pleasure that way. The man isn't engaging with her, initiating wise in a way that accesses her pleasure centers. It's moving towards, it's moving sideways on the neurological level, like you're accessing nerves that are supposed to feel great pleasure during defecation, right? Which Gandhi thought was the greatest form of human pleasure. There are a lot of like, listen, there are a lot of. Why, why do you know that? <laughs> you know what? Never mind. I only want to know why you know that. <laughs> Scratch that. No, but like, there's a lot of like very intense. It's up there with your algebra books. There. And but like, that's not really what that's for. And so, I don't. I, I have a very hard time finding anything theologically reductive, and I have never seen it go well in a marriage relationship. Like, couples that have told me they've been engaging with that are always in my office for all kinds of crap. I didn't mean to think about that. Here, I'm going to let you not talk for three minutes just for that. Um, I, I've had... In, in my office, a slightly different set of experiences because I, uh, there have been people in, who, who've come in uh, that have asked, you know, hey, we do this and we both seem to enjoy it and our consciences are not convicted, but are we sinning anyway? Like, are, we, are our consciences just so hardened by sin? Uh, you know, and they're, they're, they're worried that, you know, they're unknowingly or unwittingly uh, committing, committing sin. And um, after going through the process with some of them, my counsel them was, it, it doesn't seem to me that, that you are sinning. Um, and, uh, of course, the greatest here uh, is uh, conscience. conscience. Um, so this, this moves into the definitely maybe, at least on your sheet here, uh, the be really dang careful category. Um, and I would, I would entirely agree with that. Because it's, it's also, you know, in our, in our sexually fluid world, uh, anal sex has a whole connectivity to alternative sexuality now, right, as well. Um, uh, and so that's, you know, if, if you're a man married to a woman, but we're, are, are uh, also attracted to men, and this was something that you'd fantasized about for years, and now you're going, like, do you see where, the, where this goes? That's not something that, that now we're, we're, we're touching on something that is in your flesh that Christ wants you to bring under mastery and not bring to expression. Does that make sense? So again, you just must be profoundly careful and submitted to the Spirit and to the Word of God uh, in, in this particular practice. Okay, so we're out of time. So we don't have time for the other stuff. But, um, so just do what you want. Uh, no, no, no. <laughs> just follow, follow Nick's mathematical formulae for sexual <laughs> obedience. Well, yeah, let, me, let me do this. I think that those three levels of the triangle of a theology of sexual pleasure, I think. Yeah. Like, it, you should be producing co-worship yeah. such that your spouse is being transfigured in a way that is drawing you into union with each other. Okay? That is deeply humanizing and trust-building and meaningful and deep. And if you do that, a lot of couples experience that they never are really interested in most of the rest of the stuff. Yeah. They just like making love with each other. And they just come to each other personally, and they do what comes natural, and it, like trapezes just aren't involved. You know what I mean? So let, let me pray, and then like I said in my other session, 
And so all these things we enter into speculative areas. So like, you have to discern. You are the one creating Christ. You are the one that has to be virtuously responsible for what you do. You yes. are the one who has to understand the law of love and to walk in the Holy Spirit. And when I, like, you need to eat the watermelons, it spit out the seeds. You need to eat the barbecue, it spit out the bones. Okay? There may be things that either of us have said that are not right. Okay? This, there's a lot of, this is a speculative area where we're trying to apply truths that we know. Yes. Um, and so you need to walk a path of love in righteousness as best as you understand. Okay? God, thank you for this time. Mm-hmm. Thank you for the time we have spent on this issue. I pray that you'll use it for good things. Yes. And I pray that anything you said that was not helpful or not right, mm-hmm. that people would see that for what it is, that it would pass out of their minds, and that it wouldn't cause harm. I pray for anybody who's had a, a past with a lot of bad sexual stuff in it, of practice that it's harmful, I pray that you would tell them and show them that their sexuality is not gross. And even if they have treated their sexuality like a god, sexuality is still a gift. Yes. It is a gift of you to them. And that we can embody with godliness, and we can experience great pleasure and union and goodness in it. So I pray that you free yeah. us to be some people with incredibly great sex lives, because we don't think about how great they are, but we seek to love our spouses as we love ourselves and to seek to come together in ways that increase our sanctification and godliness as well as our union and in that context to experience rapturous pleasure. Amen. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Engage and Equip podcast. If you'd like to find more episodes, you can go online to highpointchurch.org slash podcast. You can also find us online on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Overcast, and other apps like that. We hope this episode was helpful to you as you grow in becoming a substantive disciple and a part of the local church. If this episode was helpful to you, rate or review us on Apple Podcasts or otherwise share this episode with a friend. Those are some of the best ways that we have to reach new listeners. So until next time, thanks for listening to this episode of Engage and Equip.